Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 20th, 2015. The share ID number for Friday, December 18th, is 8281. That's 8281. This morning, A Vision for You presents what is a real compulsive overeater. Most of us have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the suffering, frustration, and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. We come to OA looking for a solution which will free us from the bondage of our affliction. The very first thing you have to do to solve a problem is find out what that problem is. You have to understand the exact nature of the problem. This sounds simple, but it often isn't. In order to find a real lasting solution, you have to have an understanding of the problem thoroughly and know exactly what it is. Until you have this information, you can't solve your problem. So what is a real compulsive overeater? Well, the big book is a basic textbook for answering that very question. Today, we will be cracking open the big book, looking into the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, and more about alcoholism. As it explains and answers our question, it talks about the exact nature of our problem. Joining us this morning is Kim G., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Kim is committed to living the 12-step way of life and... That includes intensively working with others. It's with great pleasure to welcome Kim on the line this morning. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. I'm very excited to talk about this because this was something that, honestly, was missing for me for many years in Overeaters Anonymous. You know, for definitely before Overeaters Anonymous and many years into Overeaters Anonymous, I really thought food and weight was my problem. And if that was the truth, honestly, I've gotten abstinent hundreds of times, so why didn't my problem go away? I've gotten to goal weight dozens of times. Why didn't my problem go away? I mean, my physical history, how this disease is manifested, is in my early 20s, I was a size 24, diagnosed morbidly obese, couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without getting short of breath. I also dieted down in Overeaters Anonymous to a size 2 where I lost my menstrual cycle and my hair was falling out. And I also was bulimic where I was binging and purging and over-exercising to the point one time I had 102 fever that I had to do my penance on the elliptical machine and passed out and cracked my head open and got up and tried to cover the blood in my head so the people in the gym wouldn't stop me from finishing my workout routine. So if really food and weight was my problem, that, that I have accomplished that in many ways. And I know for me, in my area, what we often say is, are there any other compulsive readers here besides myself? And we all raise our hands. And what I realize now, after I've been educated by this doctor's opinion and through more about alcoholism, is what I was actually raising my hand to was, I'm fat and I don't want to be fat anymore, or I'm not fat and I'm terrified of getting fat again. And by not understanding my problem, I didn't have the um, urgency to apply the solution that the big book told me. So for me personally, everything comes back to step one. Because if I don't believe I'm powerless in step one, then I don't need a power in step two. 
And if I don't need that power in step two, why do I need to make a decision in step three? And if I'm not making that decision, then why do I really want to take the action steps of four through nine? So what happens is I sort of have a program. I sort of work a food plan. I sort of get a sponsor. I sort of do everything. And my results, as the big book tells me, are nil until I let go absolutely. So hopefully you guys have your big book. What I'm going to do is cherry pick parts of the big book in these chapters to try to hopefully really fully define what a compulsive overeater is so that you can self-diagnose yourself. You can find out if this program is something that you need. And if it's not, then maybe you don't need to do the things that I need to do and other real compulsive overeaters need to do. So we're going to start out in that doctor's opinion. And I just want to talk a minute about who Dr. Silkworth was. Dr. Silkworth was a uh, neurologist from New York, and it's estimated that he worked with about 50,000 alcoholics. And from working with that many, he started to notice some patterns. There was a certain percentage of, of people who would come in with a bad bout from alcohol, and he would dry them out, and they would leave, and he would never see them again. There was another percentage of them that would come and he would dry them out and they would leave and they would come back. And after a couple times, he would sit them down and say, look, it looks to me like you shouldn't drink at all. You can't handle your alcohol. My suggestion is just don't drink. And they would leave the hospital and he would never see them again. But there was this small percentage, he estimated about 10%, that no matter how many times he physically removed the alcohol from their systems, and explain to them the consequences of their actions once they were dry and not having a reaction from the alcohol, that they would continue to pick up and they would continue to get drunk and they would continue to come back to the hospital over and over and over. And that is what Dr. Silkworth called the chronic alcoholic. We're going to see many terms in this book that don't just talk about alcoholism. Two-thirds of Americans are obese. I do not believe two-thirds of Americans are compulsive overeaters. Two-thirds of Americans overeat to get heavy, but that's not what a real compulsive overeater is. The fact is a chronic alcoholic is someone who has an allergy to the body and obsession of the mind. And that's what this, this chapter is going to teach me. And that's who this book is for. We're going to hear terms like chronic alcoholic, alcoholic of our type, as seriously alcoholic as we are. And that is what step one is. I have to believe that to the core of my soul so that I can continue with the work and implement these steps as described. So let's turn to page XXVIII. And this is the fourth edition of the doctor's opinion that page is. That's Roman numeral 28. Because this is going to describe the medical diagnosis of what a compulsive overeater is. So let's look at that first full paragraph on XXVIII. It says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never, never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So that word allergy kind of perplexed me because honestly, I can eat enough pasta for a family of 10 and I am not having runny nose, I'm not breaking out in a rash, I'm not sneezing, because that's what I think of an allergy is. The simple definition in the 1930s of an allergy is an abnormal reaction. Well, let me tell you, eating enough pasta in one sitting for a family of 10 
is an abnormal reaction. So let's use an, I like to use examples of something I'm not to understand something I am. If I sit down with an alcoholic, which I'm not, and we both have five shots of tequila, we're both going to get drunk because that is the normal response to alcohol. But what is going to happen to me is I'm going to feel a little bit sick, I'm going to feel a little bit nauseous, a little bit lightheaded, a little bit tipsy, a little bit out of control. I do not like that feeling. I do not want any more alcohol. The alcoholic is going to get an excited, charge up, got to have more kind of feeling, and they're not only going to drink the rest of my alcohol, they're going to go out and seek more alcohol. So if 9 out of 10 people react like me, and 1 out of 10 people react like the alcoholic, all that means is they're having an abnormal reaction. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no thinking the person has weak character. They have an allergic reaction. Understanding this took away my guilt and my shame. It also explained to me why at a birthday party as a kid, and I would have my one piece of cake, and I'd be sitting there going, I really want more, I really want more, and I'm watching my friend have the half a piece of cake and stop and saying, why don't I have her willpower? Why don't I have her willpower? What I didn't understand was she doesn't have willpower. She doesn't want any more cake. And in fact, if she had more cake, she'd probably be thinking, ooh, I'm feeling a little bit sick. I'm a little bit nauseous. I don't want this cake because I don't like that feeling. I don't know about you, but when I heard people say, this is too sweet or I am too full, I thought they were lying. I thought they were bragging about their willpower because I couldn't fathom that because all I knew was the allergic reaction the food had in me, and I assumed that other people experienced food like me. And that was not what was happening. I was having an abnormal reaction. And what is that abnormal reaction? It's the phenomenon of craving. It's the idea that the first couple Oreos really, really taste good, and I get that, ah, feeling. But three, four, five sleeves into it, I am eating so fast, I can't even taste it anymore. And the urgency is becoming more desperate. It intensifies and it never satisfies. And this never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So what would happen in my life is those who are not compulsive overeaters would look at me, see what the food is doing to me, and say, why are you doing this to yourself, Kim? And I'd be looking at them knowing what the food does for me and asking, why aren't you doing it? But I couldn't see that at the time. And these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form. An alcoholic doesn't fool himself to say, well, I'm having chicken marsala with a white wine sauce, but the white wine sauce kind of, it, it, it cooks off, so I'm just going to have it. Yet yeah, don't we do those compulsive overeaters? You know, let's say your binge food is flour, which is one of mine. It's only lightly breaded. It's only a couple croutons. My body doesn't know that. My body just knows it's ingested something it's allergic to. You know, I think of a, a sponsee I have who has I'm a, a dually addicted, and one time she had a really, really bad cold, and her throat was killing her, and she texted me, and she said, Kim, my throat hurts so bad. I really think just some sugar-free ice cream would help. And I texted her back, and I said, so would a shot of whiskey. And she, she, got, she just texted me back, got it. Because I have to have the conviction that I cannot ingest my binge foods the same way an alcoholic has that same conviction. So now let's drop down to the end of that same exact page, the last paragraph. Because this is going to talk about the interaction of the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And if you're not a compulsive overeater and you're on this line, 
this is not going to make sense. If you are a compulsive overeater of, of the type they're talking about, you're going to get very uncomfortable. So it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from their false. To them, their alcoholic life is their only normal one. So I had to understand that I was chasing an effect. You know, I came in thinking, well, I really, really like Oreos. If you can teach me how to have three Oreos and stop, I'm going to be happy. But if that is really my problem, that I really like the taste of Oreos, how does that explain the fact that I eat food when it's stale, that I eat food when it's burnt, that I eat food frozen that should be defrosted and cooked? I'm chasing an effect from that food. So what I have to do is identify those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors that create that effect. And the only way I'm not going to have the effect, which it says later, the only relief these doctors have to suggest is entire abstinence. The same way if someone's allergic to strawberry and breaks out in a rash, do they go through the idea, well, maybe if it's in strawberry jam, I won't have the, the effect. Maybe if it's organic, I won't have the effect. I live in Jersey. Maybe the strawberries in California won't give me that effect. So I have to understand what creates the effect, and then I have to abstain from it. And the sensation is elusive. We do have to do more investigation as compulsive overeaters. Someone in AA walks into a meeting, they know what sobriety is. We have to investigate that, and that's why it's so important that we talk to someone who's recovered, who has neutrality around the foods that can help us discover that. So the silly um, comparison I use is, you know, if I watch the movie Ocean's Eleven, I see George Clooney. I know he's a good-looking guy. I agree he's a good-looking guy, but all I see is Brad Pitt. Because since puberty, all I've loved is blonde hair, blue eyes, tall, lanky guys. I don't remember making a decision about it, but I know when I walk into a room of 50 guys, the blue eyes are going to pop out at me. The guys over six feet are going to pop out at me, even though it's elusive why. When you're stressed out, when there's a snowstorm or a hurricane or a tornado, wherever you are in the world, that's coming and you have to go to that food store, you know which aisles you want to go down. You know which ones that you totally ignore. You know when you go to an all-you-eat buffet, which are the, the ingredients and foods that you're going to go to. And we have to be thoroughly honest with that. So that's the allergy. Let's look at the next couple sentences, which are going to tell me about my obsession of the mind. It says they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. So restless, irritable discontent is not when I'm in the food. I don't know about you guys, but towards the end, my disease was such that I felt nothing in the food. That's why I liked it. I didn't want to feel anything. What would happen is not at the beginning of the bag of the Doritos, at the end of the bag when there's nothing left, and that I'm not having that, that, that um, phenomenon of craving going on, emotions pop up. I start to get restless, irritable, discontent, uncomfortable in my own skin. And the only way I have known up to this point in my life to get rid of that feeling is to have a bite. And at once, boom, I get some ease and comfort. Now, unfortunately,
unfortunately, after five or six seconds, that feeling is gone, and now I have to go back and have more and more and more. So the restless irritability discontentment does not go away by abstinence. In fact, in my experience, it intensifies, which is why I could, I do feel better the first couple weeks I'm abstinent. My stomach is not as upset. I'm starting to understand people better. I'm able to focus more. And I'm like, this is great. God has removed the obsession. Little did I know it had nothing to do with the obsession. It was the freedom from the allergy not being triggered. The obsession is removed by the steps. So I haven't worked some steps. Obsession is waiting for me. And that's why I see personally a lot of people can get 30 days, but very few can get 60 because the restlessness, the irritability, the discontentment builds up until we have no choice but to pick up that first bite. And because of the allergy, we have no choice but to continue to binge. So let's look at the interactions and let the rest of that paragraph. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, so that means we are, the desire is the obsession. I am stone cold sober, and I make the decision to pick it up. My opinion is that we use that word slip and we kill people in our fellowship because I have personally have never had a, a, a brownie jump in my mouth. I have always succumbed to that desire. And the definition of succumb is to give way to a superior force. And that is exactly how it feels. A slip, are there accidents? Absolutely. Did you order something at a restaurant and you asked what the ingredients were and then something was in there that you didn't know? That's an accident. But deciding, oh, there's croutons in the salad, I'm just going to eat them or deciding to have a dessert and coming back the next day and saying, oh, I made a mistake, it's a slip. That is not a slip. That is a succumbing to the desire again. And then the phenomenon of craving develops. So once again, we do not have the phenomenon of craving unless we ingest the food. The well-known stages of esprit develop, that ah, feeling. Emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. I swear to God this will never happen. January 1st, 11.59, Monday morning. I swear it will never happen again. Of course, since I'm never going to have these foods again, I might as well finish this bag or this box because I don't want to waste anything. But this time is going to be different. And this is repeated over and over and over and over unless this person can experience an entire psychic change. In this chapter, we're going to hear entire abstinence, which means we have to be 100% free of our binge food ingredients and behaviors, and we're hearing about an entire psychic change. The entire psychic change is all 12 steps. I don't know about you, but I did the OA waltz for years. Steps 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, and wondered why I got back in the food. Because I was having a partial. I was having psychic awarenesses. I wasn't having a psychic change. So that, and hopefully some people out there are a little bit uncomfortable with this because this is telling me who I am. But even with the medical diagnosis, what does that mean in a human being? How does that manifest in a human? So we go to Bill's story, which tells us what that looks like in a human being. And pages one through eight are step one. It's Bill's descent into the madness of alcoholism. So I also, it was suggested to me, and I often suggest to other people, to look at it two different ways. One is to forget that Bill's a guy in World War II and it's, you know, um, the 1920s, 
and ask yourself, did I eat like Bill drank? Did I feel like Bill felt? And did I think like Bill sank? And the other is, look at the progression. He goes from fun and excitement to necessity to oblivion. Does that resonate with how your disease progressed? And I'm just going to pick one paragraph out of this um, chapter to look at. Because this was when I started to realize that food was not my problem. If we go to page six, the first full paragraph, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a, a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight, and all night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. So my brain raced uncontrollably, impending calamity, writhing nerves. This is my state, not just in the food. It's my state in sobriety. And I don't know how to handle that. And I remember specifically when I lived with my parents and I would come home from work and it was just a couple minutes, I would go to the grocery store and I loved icing. And I would get a tub of icing and a cake mix. Never intending to make a cake, but I thought the lady at the register would believe I was making a cake if I bought both. And I could feel in line, I could feel my shoulders starting to relax because I knew the icing was in my cart. I hadn't even tasted it yet. But even when I got into checkout, I had to throw in M&Ms or something because the, the three or four minute drive from the grocery store to my parents' house was unfathomable without having something in my mouth. So the anxiety was relieved by that first bite and even thinking about that first bite. So when Bill says here, gin would fix that, two bottles and oblivion, he's starting to acknowledge now that food is not his problem or liquor is not his problem, it's his solution. I had to understand that food was not my problem, it was my solution. And I needed to find another solution because it was killing me. So let's go into the chapter now. There is a solution. And we're going to go to the bottom of page 20. Because a big part of knowing who I am is knowing who I am not. So at the bottom of page 20, the second, um, the last full paragraph, it talks about the moderate drinker. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up their liquor entirely. If they have a good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. Is that your reality? Because if that's your reality, most likely a conventional diet program will help you. You know, I think of my father who's, who the day before he goes on vacation, weighs himself, he goes on vacation for 10 days, and he'll gain 10 pounds. Because a lot of the experience of a vacation is enjoying the local cuisine. And he comes home, he weighs himself, and he just moderates until he gets that weight off. He can take it or leave it alone. He's not a compulsive overeater. Then we're talking about the hard eater, the hard drinker. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. 
So these are the people who, see, who maybe are even some of our binge buddies that get a diagnosis of diabetes and it scares them into eating properly. Or maybe their husband threatens to leave them because they're gaining so much weight and they can simply lose the weight. I'm going to use an example once again of something I am not. I am not an alcoholic. I am a hard drinker. I drank alcoholically for 10 years. I could probably tell a good AA story with the consequences of my, my drinking. But at the age of 27, I was driving drunk with me and a friend in the car, went the wrong way down the highway, almost killed us both. I never had a drink again. That sufficiently scared me not to drink. Now, I want to share that if I was caught that night drinking and driving, and I was caught any of the other times I drink and drove, <clears throat> what would have happened to me in the courts? They would have sentenced me to AA. And I would have gone into your typical contemporary AA meeting, and they would have told me, don't drink, go to meetings. Think the drink through. And I would have been able to stay sober and been a success in AA. Let me tell you something else. Is I probably would have killed alcoholics trying to teach them that same message. So we do have moderate eaters and heavy eaters and overeaters anonymous, and they are welcome because of the third tradition. But understand, if you are a real compulsive overeater and you try to follow the directions of a moderate eater that can just go to meetings and not pick up, if you can, if you can um, just have a hard drinker who has a very structured food plan, a very structured way of just doing the tools only and no steps, and you're a real compulsive overeater, you could die trying to do that. So I have to know who I am, and I am the real compulsive overeater. So let's turn now to page 23 at the top of that paragraph. It says, these observations, which is all about the allergy, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So if really it was just an allergy only for addiction, then rehabs would kick out 100% recovery because they get people free of the allergy. They could have a rational conversation with somebody like Dr. Silkworth would, and people could make the decision not to drink again, not to eat again. But that my main problem is in my mind, I'm going to need a different solution than sobriety. And that's why I need Overeaters Anonymous. I do not need Overeaters Anonymous because of the allergy. I need Overeaters Anonymous because I have a mental obsession that blocks me from understanding the consequences of picking up. So what does that look like? Let's turn to page 24, the first full paragraph, which to me is the one that nailed the coffin of what I, why I need to do this work. Because the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Now, if you go to a, a rehab, what's the first question they're going to ask you? What's your drug of choice? My book is telling me I don't have a choice. And if I was being honest, if I went into a rehab, what's my drug of choice? My drug of choice would be alcohol. I drank alcoholically and I made a choice not to. I smoked pot in college. I decided not to. I have decided over and over and over not to eat my binge foods. And I have failed utterly over and over and over. I don't have the ability not to choose. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into the consciousness with sufficient force the memory and suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. 
we are without defense against the first drink. So I like to compare this to what we hear in AA meetings and OA meetings and most 12-step meetings. Don't drink, go to meetings. Think the drink through. Remember your last drunk. Put the plug in the jug. Think, think, think. Once again, my opinion, this is my opinion. Those are, those are phrases that were probably introduced by moderate drinkers and heavy drinkers that it worked for them. But my book is telling me if you're an alcoholic of my type, I'm not going to be unable to do that. I can't remember, I can't remember my consequences from breakfast, let alone a couple weeks ago. I used to think war stories. My God, I think of some of the people on this line and the consequences and how eloquent they are they speak on the phone. I don't think I'm ever in a grocery store thinking, you know what? Harlan said this. Lori said this. Leia said this. I don't think I'm going to eat that. My, I don't have that ability to bring that up. Now, it tells me at certain times I can. And that gives me this false idea that maybe I can do that. You know, at certain times a meeting will work. And then it won't. At certain times, phone calls will work, and then it won't. And I think of it this way. I like the, the game Russian Roulette. You have a gun. It has eight chambers. I think six chambers, I think. I don't know anything about guns. Six chambers. Five are empty. One has a bullet in it. And I'm willing to run that roulette because I want to be able to control and enjoy my eating. But the insanity is, as my disease progresses, I now have five bullets in the chamber and only one shot at being able to, to, to stop or control it. And yet I'm willing to pull that trigger over and over. And I had to understand that I'm without defense against the first drink. I always thought, no, as long as I can keep it to 600 calories, as long as I can keep it to one donut or one slice of pizza, I'm going to be okay. That was not understanding the allergy that will not allow me to do that. So my real problem, my real fight is taking that first bite, not limiting it to three bites. So now let's jump ahead to the chapter more about alcoholism. On page 30, that chapter comes out, starts out. So there's a progression here where they talk about first the illusion in the first paragraph, the illusion that someday we will control and enjoy our eating. And I didn't even realize that was an illusion because it's, it's, a, it's a visual, you know, whatever. Because if I'm controlling my food, I'm not enjoying it. And when I'm enjoying it, I'm not controlling it. So the illusion is I want to do both. Then they talk about the delusion that we are like other people. The delusion, and I have to tell you, my delusion was delusional. Because I didn't want to eat like other people. I want to eat like I want to eat. I just don't want the consequences of it. And I'm 49, so those, for those of you that are around my age, this is the way I visualize it. I want to look like the Anna Nicole Smith that was in Playboy, but I want to eat like the Anna Nicole Smith who had that reality show in VH1. So hopefully that makes sense to you. I don't want the consequences. I prayed every day in high school, God, please make me a size 14 because I didn't want to shop in the big girl stores. I don't ever remember saying, God, please help me to stop eating. And then it gets to the point where it talks about insanity. If we understand this, which I got, you know, I'm a very, can be a very smart compulsive overeater. I can read all the books. But I am insane because I can't stop myself from making that, taking that first drink. So let's now go to page 34. Because we have, once again, we have to understand that the, the, the mental obsession, and this, let me step back a second. This chapter 
is the reason I come to Overeaters Anonymous. This is not a chapter about people who are drunk and can't get sober. This is a chapter about people that are sober and make the insane decision to drink. So why is that? Why when I'm stone cold sober? Why when I'm not experiencing the allergy am I making that insane decision? That's the reason I come here. So on page 34, that second paragraph, it says, for those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. And that's an important thing. Are you convinced that you're unable to drink moderately? It's not uncommon for me to take someone through the doctor's opinion, offer a work with them, and say, okay, are you willing to put down 100% of your food? And it's not unusual for someone to say, well, I'll, I just want to be a little bit more abstinent than I was. I'm willing to work, put down 80% of these foods. That's not what the big book is asking us. The big book is telling us over and over again that we have to have the food down, that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. We do not work the steps to get abstinent, which is unfortunately what I was told. I need to be abstinent in order to work the steps. So am I convinced in step one that I'm unable to drink moderately? And then the text goes, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent which he has already lost the power of choice, whether he will drink or not. So that, is, once again, to me, harkens back to the moderate and the heavy eaters. Those people who come into OA and are able through the power of the fellowship, which is very, very powerful, are able to stay abstinent and happy. They do not need the spiritual solutions. Those people that can get to a goal weight and then go back and moderately have their binge foods, that say they can eat anything in moderation, they do not need a spiritual solution. And they're not the real compulsive ovary that's in here. Once again, because of our third tradition, they are absolutely welcome here. And if there's any moderate or heavy eaters in the line, welcome. But please, I beg of you, do not sponsor someone like me. Because your message of don't drink and go to meetings will kill me. And those of you that are real compulsive overeaters, welcome the people who are, who are moderate and heavy, but understand they cannot be your sponsor or you will die on that message. Many of us have thought we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever. Yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. So to me, this harkens back to me putting these red lines. When I graduate high school, when I graduate college, when I reach a size 16, when I reach a size 18, when I reach um, 200 pounds, 225 pounds, then I'm going to do something about it. And what I would do is every time I hit that red line, I would change the line. And that would give myself the impression I still had control. But when I really, really tried, and I said that red line was a hard red line, and I couldn't do it, I was baffled. I mean, I can, get, I can make some crap happen. I got my graduate degree in relapse, people. I'm a smart girl, and I can make stuff happen. Why can't I make this happen? So then I'm going to use now in the comparison of Bill versus um, Jim versus Fred. Because I love to do that because my, my, understand, my hope was that if I could make life look a certain way, that I wouldn't need to eat. If I got the right boyfriend, if I had the right job, if I had the right pair of jeans, if I wore the right size, everything would be okay. So when I read the story of Jim, who loses everything and picks up, that makes sense. 
of course, when the guy breaks up with me, I'm going to be binging on a Saturday night with Ben and Jerry. Of course. But then I read about Fred. Fred has everything going for him. Everything is going well. In fact, the day that he picks up, it was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. So why was he eating? So just, I, don't, I know we're, we can't see each other, but just to take a little quiz. How many of you have eaten when you're, at, when you're sad? How many of you have eaten when you're happy? How many of you have eaten in a bad relationship? How many have you eaten in a good relationship? How many have you eaten when you lost your job? How many of you have eaten when you got a promotion? If it really is that life circumstances are the reason I eat, how come I eat regardless of what the life circumstances are? So that is why Fred was so important to me. So I'm going to read on page 40 the second full paragraph about halfway down because Fred is someone, because things are going his way, he doesn't believe he's like these guys. Yeah, he's got a little problem with alcohol, but he's not even at step one. So about halfway down, it says, I rather appreciate your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink. But I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that I would therefore be successful where you and men had failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. So that's his game plan, willpower and keeping on guard. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That was my game plan for 15 years in OA. Yeah, those steps, I mean, after all, you told me I can take what I want and leave the rest. But I didn't want to do the steps. I was willing to do some of the tools. I was willing to work up most of the food plan. But I'm going to use my willpower and keeping on guard in order to protect myself. And then he picks up. So we talk about promises so much in this program. I'm going to read you a promise this program is going to give us. So on the bottom of 41, that last paragraph, as soon as I regained my ability to think, so once again, he, he got sober, I went carefully over the evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatsoever against that first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. I commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale, as carelessly as saying, well, the ice cream is made from organic, you know, cows that were raised on organic curd and are raised by Amish people. Come on, how, how bad can the ice cream be? I now remember what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied, here's the promise, they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again, they had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that my willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said they had a problem that had them hopelessly defeated, I knew then it was a crushing blow. Two of the members of AA came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much, and they asked me if I thought myself an alcoholic and if I were really lick this time. I had to concede on both propositions. So for those of you who are, are, are a little bit bristly right now, my suggestion is after this is over, sit down. If you write, write. If, you, if whatever that is for you that helps you is sit down and think, 
Do you believe yourself an alcoholic of the type we're discussing? And if you were really licked this time, not are you willing to put the food down today? That's not what the big book asks us. The big book asks us, are you done? It talks about on, in, in vision for you, you get to the point where you can't live with the food and you can't live without the food. And that's the point where we're defeated enough to put the food down and work through these steps. So ask yourself that. Call a recovered person. Have a discussion. If you think yourself an alcoholic of the type they're describing, and if you were really licked this time. So let's go, I'm going to jump back now to there is a solution. Because this was the point after 17 years in OA, and I came into a meeting, and I got scared enough to do the steps. So that last paragraph on page 25, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, do you believe that? We believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. And let me tell you, what's a middle-of-the-road solution? Is don't drink, go to meetings, using the tools only. It is thinking that you get the right sponsor. It's thinking if you listen to Vision for You every day. It's thinking if you go to the, the convention and maybe rub up against Harlan and Lori and Ruth, that's, that's going to make you recover. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. That's when we're willing to make changes, with life becoming impossible, drunk or sober. And we had passed through the region from which there is no return from human aid. We had but two alternatives. One was to go onto the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. And when someone was able to point out to me the intolerable situation is not being in the food. The intolerable situation is being sober. You mean you want me to be abstinent in the morning and the afternoon and the evening, day after day? I mean, when I heard people talk about being back-to-back abstinent, I thought, that's insane. I, I mean, I've been abstinent for three months. Of course, that's over a six-month period. The intolerable situation is that I can't handle being sober. It's so untenable. And I have two alternatives. One is I'm going to blot out the consciousness and pick up the food. And the other is I'm going to go for spiritual help, which means pick up the steps. And as long as I think there's a door number three, my experience and my observation is, is a compulsive overeater of the type they're describing is going to pick door number three. So I have to be down to the point that I understand I have two choices, pick up the food, pick up the steps, pick up the food, and pick up the steps. So I'm going to finish by talking about Roland, because I love Roland. Page 26 and page 27 talks about this American businessman, Roland Hazard. And the reason I love Roland is we've got to remember historically, this is the Great Depression. People don't have any money, 25% unemployment rate, people are waiting in bread lines, and Roland his family has money, old money, political money. They love their son. He has access to everything. They sent him to the best psychiatrist. At one point, they put him on a deserted island and had someone stay with him. And the day he came back from that island, he picked up. And he could not stay sober. And the reason I love that is because I always thought if I could have a personal chef, I could be abstinent. If I could get on The Biggest Loser and do that with my trainer, I could be abstinent. If Brad Pitt asked me out, I could be abstinent. If all these outside influences happened, I would be abstinent. And I couldn't do it because I was as powerless as Roland Hazard was with all the access he had to that stuff. So on page 26, 
they talk about the fact that they exhausted all the psychiatrists in the United States, and they look outside the United States, and there's three main psychiatrists at the time, Sigmund Freud, um, Alfred Adler, and Carl Jung. And gratefully, they were able to get him in with Carl Jung. And it wasn't like, hey, Carl Jung, can you evaluate my son? They paid for Roland to live with Carl Jung for a year. To me, I was like, if only I got into the Dr. Phil house, I would be okay. So after a year, and Dr. Young says, we can, you know, I can, this is all I can do for you. And this is, this is um, and that first full paragraph about halfway down is Roland's attitude at that time. It says, above all, he, Roland, had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind, its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. And my experience is a lot of smart compulsive overreaders in OA. I was a smart compulsive overreader. I knew the inner workings. I knew, I knew the metabolic types of, of, how, of how certain foods digested. I understood all that, but I kept eating, and I kept eating. So he goes back to, to Carl Jung and says, what, what can I do? And he says, I can't help you. To his credit, he said, I can't help you. So the top of 27, that second paragraph, the doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where the state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with the clang. He said to the doctor, there is, no, is there no exception? So we often hear that the, the answer is a spiritual awakening, a psychic change, a personality change. What does that mean? I think this next paragraph is a perfect description of what a spiritual awakening looks like. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it and I'm going to say the word change next to every word that's a synonym of change. So it says here, exceptions to such cases as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have what are called vital spiritual experiences, change. To me, these occurrences are a phenomenon, change. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements, change, and rearrangements, change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of these men, are suddenly cast to one side, change, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them, change. In fact, they've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement change within you. So I'm going to end with talking about what does the step process do. If my problem is allergy to the body, obsession of the mind, and the allergy to the body is resolved by, by accidents, and the steps resolve the mental obsession, how is that accomplished? So it says here, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men. So let's look at the action steps, four through nine. In steps four and five, we look at our resentments, our fears, and our sex conduct, and they're cast to one side. In six and seven, we acknowledge our character defects. We're selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and considerate, and those are cast to one side. And in eight and nine, we get rid of our guilt and our shame and our remorse for how we've treated others. And when they're cast to one side, they are replaced by a completely new set of conceptions and motives. What is that? That's the principles of the steps. Honesty, faith, awareness, courage, humility, and the other ones. So by doing that process, what my experience is, I don't white-knuckle my food. I am not trying to remember my last drunk. What, ha what my experience is, is that obsession is removed. I have neutrality around the food. I am not cocky. I'm, I'm afraid. 
I do not want my binge foods. And if I don't want my binge foods, I'm not going to pick up my binge foods, which means I'm not going to trigger the allergy, which means I'm not going to be in the vicious cycle, which is what we first discussed in the doctor's opinion. So hopefully with this presentation, you guys are understand what a real compulsive overeater is. And hopefully if you understand that you are have an intolerable situation being abstinent, I hope that you will choose to call someone who has recovered and pick up the steps rather than choose to go back into the food. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Kim, for helping to answer the question this morning, what is a real compulsive overeater? And thank you, of course, for your wonderful overview of the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, and more about alcoholism. Very thorough and beautiful. Thank you very much for your service this morning. Kim's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording. Stay tuned for that. And now we're going to transition right into questions. If you have a question for Kim, star one to unmute and identify yourself, please. Good morning. My name is Anne. Hi, Anne. Hold on one second. What's your lo- the first in- letter of your last name? N. N. Mm-hmm. Any anyone else with questions this morning? Star one to unmute. Yes, Jude, uh, Judy F. Judy F. And anyone else? If it's on your mind, I'm sure it's on the mind of others. So don't be shy here. Jump in. The water's warm. Okay, well, let's break the ice with Anne N. Please, go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't have a question for Judy. What I have a question for, I woke up late. If you could give me the number to this recording, that would be great. Okay, well, stay tuned for that. Okay, we'll get that as soon as the technology allows me so hold on for that. Judy Thank F. You. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, good morning. Good morning, and thank you so much for your very informative discussion. I just, uh, I found it to be very helpful. I uh, I don't Judy hear F, I don't hear you. You Star can't one. hear me? Now we can. Now we can. Go ahead. Hear me now? Yes. Okay. I said um, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father was an alcoholic, as was his siblings. Um, my mother's uh, my mother didn't drink. Her um, her brothers drank. Uh, one of them died very young uh, from alcoholism. And uh, growing up, you know, I always had this thing in my head that, oh, I would never drink, okay? I was completely turned off from that. But uh, as I grew grew older, um, I gained, I used food. I noticed I used food in the same way that my relatives or the way I used to observe them, um, use alcohol, and I find myself now at uh, more than 300 pounds, um, 
utilizing food the same way that my um my 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 relatives used alcohol. So what I'm trying to do is to figure out how how does that translate um in terms of the biologics, the allergy theory. Uh I agree with you. I think I do have an allergy to sugar, um, which is my food of you know, my drug of choice, so to speak. So um, I just wanted to make that comment and to see if I could get, you know, some feedback from you on how you think I might want to approach this problem. I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. And um, I just want to encourage people to, you know, I love to hear some new voices asking questions, and that's a great service. A lot of times I think people are afraid to speak up on the line, and I think one of the best services you can do is to ask a question, because like Leah said, if you're sitting there hoping someone else asked the question, I'm sure there's a dozen people hoping the same thing. Um, and thank you, Judy, for the question. I mean, that was a, a hard thing for me, too, because alcohol seems so clear-cut, and my food seemed a little bit elusive, like the doctor's opinion talked about. So um, I don't know if you listen to Vision for You on a daily basis, but at, this, at the end of the second hour, we do have people who offer to take people through the doctor's opinion because we do have to do some more investigation about what what is abstinence. You know, we have to, and, and I get nervous when I ask someone what their abstinence is and they give me their food plan. Because the food plan are those limits and boundaries around the foods that you do eat. We need to know what we're abstaining from. I mean, our World Service talks about the definition of abstinence is abstaining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. So when someone asks you what your abstinence is, we should be able to say that. That's black and white. So we have to, and a lot of times, in the, in the doctor's opinion tells us too, we cannot differentiate the truth from the false. Our alcoholic life is the only normal one. So we need someone who's recovered that can come in, and when we tell them the list of our binge foods, they can say, did you ever notice that all those binge foods contain these ingredients? And we have to get real honest about that because once we identify those foods, we are no different than the alcoholic, which is why I think it's so important as we go through Bill's story is to identify do we eat like Bill drank, do we think like Bill thought, and do we feel like Bill felt because that's the progression of the illness and not be so focused on is a Bud Light versus a Snickers bar or if your friend binges on pizza and you binge on Snickers bars is we have to identify those foods. Abstinence is black and white. A food either creates the phenomenon of craving or it doesn't. And I'm just going to end with one of the big blockers for me was when I read this and I said, well, you know, alcoholics don't have to drink. I have to eat every day and I have to take the tiger out of the cage every day, I used to hear. And I don't, I, someone slammed me with that. Alcoholics drink. They just don't drink alcohol. I eat. I do not eat my binge foods, my binge ingredients, or engage in my binge behaviors 100%. So we have to get clear on what that is, and the clearest way to do that is to ask someone who is recovered to go through that doctor's opinion with you so that you can get sober enough so you can begin to work the steps. And I hope that helps, Judy. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Judy F., for the question. Who else has a question for Kim this morning? Hi, this is Ellen. Ellen? Pam S. 
Pam S. Anyone Ann else? And Shirley. Shirley W. Shirley W. Anyone else? Esther C. Did I hear Melissa C? Esther C. Esther C. Thank you, Esther. And who else came in with Esther? Ayana, A-Y-A-N-N-A. Okay, Ariana. All right. And we'll start with Ellen. Ellen, you need to unmute, please. Star one. I'm sorry, I didn't catch. Lisa Lee W. Lisa Lee W. Okay. All right, Ellen, please go ahead. I. You'll need to star one to unmute Ellen. Hi, um, can you hear me now? Yes, go ahead, Emma. Great. Um, so I wanted to thank you, first of all, for making it so clear about, um, I didn't realize, you know, like I knew I'm a food addict, but I, I'm glad you made it so clear, especially about the alcohol, because also I'm alcoholic, and um, I think I'm, now I would say, a hard drinker, because I did quit, um, even though I was, my behaviors were that of alcoholic, um, I did stop drinking and wasn't too much of a problem, although this food is, and um, I'm working with a sponsor now, but thank you. Um, I hadn't had it told to me so clear like this. But anyway, my question is, um, so what do you think about the familial things? Like, does this, does this type of addictions run in the family? And I know, like, alcoholism does, but, like, I know a lot of people that are in OA have alcoholic parents or uh, siblings or uh, food addict parents that, that don't know they're food addicts. And um, I just wanted to know, do you find that to be that all of this addiction, whether it be drugs, alcohol, food, does all of this uh, run in families? Thanks for the question, Ellen. I don't know. And I have to tell you, I don't really feel it's relevant to what I have to do today. You know, for me, to, I, that's where, where a lot of um, the psychology came in. I actually have an undergrad degree in psychology. Is I thought if I could figure out if it came from my mother or my aunt, then maybe I could control it. And maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. Maybe there's a real biological explanation for why we're why we're addicts, and some people aren't. I don't know. I just know my reality today is that I have an allergy to the body and a mental obsession, and if I don't address it, I'm going to die. So I really try to not get in those type of things because for me personally, that's me trying to blame my family tree for who I am. Do I see um, commonalities between families? Absolutely. But I also have, um, you know, a brother that has no problem with food or alcohol, yet I have alcoholics and my mom's in OA. So, you know, to me, I don't know. And the more I try to figure stuff out, the more of a block it is for me personally. So it's not important that I understand how it happened, why it happened, and who it came from, but that I fully concede to my innermost self that this is my reality. And the other thing is my family doesn't need to understand it. They don't have to understand what I do and why I need to do it. I have to understand who I am and what I need to do. I hope that helps, Ellen. Thank you, Ellen, for the question. Pam S., your turn. Questions only, please, in the interest of time. Thank you. I'm um, interest of time. I didn't get to touch that. Did you say Anne? Oh, I'm sorry. I said Pam S. Oh, okay. sorry. Mm-hmm. This is Pam, and I didn't catch what you said about the interest of time. Oh, in the interest of time, if we could just 
pose questions rather than an oh, abundance okay, of sure. comments. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope I can do that. Um I have been around program since the 90s, late 90s to early 2000s. And I've had, you know, a maximum period of abstinence being nine months, but I've never worked the steps thoroughly. And now coming to a vision for you, um, I am, you know, I, I understand that I'm a real compulsive overeater. I understand that, um, you know, the answer is, number one, put the food down, and then, you know, well, I guess zero is put the food down, and number one is work the steps, so to speak. Um, My question is, my disease has progressed to the point where I will pick up every three or four days and then have three or four days of trying to get back on, and then have, you know, so it's a it's a three to four day cycle of being on and off, on and off. Um, it's like the the disease in in me has progressed to the point where um, it used to be that willpower could get me through um, to yet another day, and maybe I had more willingness to take more action. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I I do know that I need to formulate more of a support group in uh, with recovered people in a vision for you. But I guess my question is, what steps should I take as a chronic relapser who is um, not trying to figure out if I belong here or not to stay abstinent, to hang on from one day to the next, um, so that I can so that I can get through the steps and be recovered. Thanks for the question, Pam. I think that you're you're giving yourself your answer to a certain extent. You know, you've been in the in the program since the late '90s. I was in since the mid '90s. The most that you've gotten is nine months of abstinence, not working the steps, because once again, the the fellowship can be powerful, so it's able to support you. And now you're thinking, well, maybe if I get more support, I'll be able to do it again. And you're letting and you're saying your disease won't allow that anymore. You're getting three or four days. So it seems like it's pretty consistent that the disease is progressing. So it sounds to me like you need to not only put the food down, but have a plan of how to work the steps once you do it. Because your window of being able to have that clarity to work the steps is getting shorter and shorter. So I would immediately get into step work. You know, and, I'll just, and I'm just going to share this, because, and this is not what I'm recommending, but I'm just going to share my experience. When I got to the point where I was, could not live with the food and would live without the food. I was on disability, in bed from an ankle injury, hurt, got on a phone line, similar division for you. I heard my truth. I was scared. I knew I needed to work the steps. I called people. Nobody was available to sponsor, but everyone was willing to talk to me. So what I did was I used that phone meeting um, and listened to the phone meeting and worked through the steps that way. Um, it was a little bit easier. This phone meeting was a little bit faster, and there was a gentleman that always shared laughs. So I had the ability to listen to the paragraph, listen to three shares, fast forward till I heard the gentleman, and I knew the next paragraph was coming. So I was listening to four, five, six meetings a day, and I would call recovered people, and I would get my questions answered. And Pam, just because I came in the same time you were, I, had to, I was questioning what I was taught. What do you mean this is a two-fold illness? I thought it was a three-fold illness. What do you mean I have to be abstinent before I work the steps? I thought I had to get, work the steps to get abstinent. 
Everybody answered my questions, but nobody had the time to sponsor me. I got to my fourth step. I asked someone locally if they could take my fifth step, say, can I call you in two weeks? Because once again, I'm, I'm bed bound, can't go anywhere. She took my fifth step. We did five, six, seven, eight that day. By that time, I had built up enough relationships with people that I was able to call them for my step nines, started doing 10, 11, and started sponsoring people. So I worked through the steps in six weeks without having an individual sponsor. Because it's not about the sponsor, it's about you doing the work. On a vision for you, we're very blessed. We have the chapters more about doctor's opinion through working with others on Sunday editions where someone will go over a, an entire chapter in an hour. So my suggestion is go on a doctor's opinion, read that, call five, six, seven, eight. How many do you need to recover people to get your answers questions? Ask if they're available. You know, I often get questions because I, I speak a lot of division for you. You, I need you to sponsor me, Kim. You know, honestly, Bill Wilson can come down from the grave, up from the grave, and if you're not ready, you're not going to recover. But if you're desperate, like I was desperate five years ago, Mickey Mouse could have sponsored me and I would have recovered because it was about me doing the work. So when you talk to someone, ask if they have sponsees that are available. Don't get caught up in the personalities of the vision for you. If you like that way that person talks, their sponsees are probably the same way. And that's what I do. I will text people out all my sponsees' phone numbers. And I, I hope they are doing the same thing if they're not available. But start doing the work right away. Don't wait for three or four days of abstinence. Your experience is telling you that three or four days you're back in the food. So you better start. If, you put down, if you're putting down the food this morning, my suggestion is start in those chapters today. And understand that it's the work that you do in those chapters that's going to create that experience. And hopefully you'll find someone who can actually lead you through the steps, but understand that it's, that's not necessary to happen. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Pam S., for the question. Ann O., your turn. Hi, this is Ann O., compulsive overeater, and my question is pretty much a repeat of Pam's right there. Um, maybe ask, um, and forgive me because I'm very angry right now about... Um, my state of struggling out of, to get out of relapse and um, how do you maintain the willingness if we are um, defenseless against that first fight, we're doomed and, um, you know, there's no human power that can relieve me and relieve us and um, I don't have a sense of a higher power um, enough to rely on. Um, but I think, you know, my question was really ultimately answered with the last question, but I feel like it's up to me. It's up to me. And um, I guess that's what I'll, <laughs> you know, how do you maintain that willingness? And I'll pass. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the question, Ann. I have to tell you, once again, this is my experience. I used willingness as a loophole. And I would say, well, I can't do it now because I'm not willing. So I'm going to pray for the willingness to be willing. And then I'm going to pray for the willingness to be willing to be willing. So my, my suggestion is don't wait for willingness. Just take the action. Willingness without action is fantasy. So I don't know about you, but, you know, especially during the holidays, I'm not particularly willing to go to work every day. But I go every day because I understand I need the paycheck and it's to pay my mortgage. You know, if, if you're going to train for a marathon, 
and you get up and you're not willing to go running, but if you run, your muscles are going to get the benefit out of running, whether you're doing it with a happy heart, a mad heart, an angry heart like you're saying you're having. It's the actions that are going to get you the results. So, you know, take that action of calling someone. Take that action of asking someone to go to the doctor's opinion. Take the action of putting the food down whether you're willing to or not. You know, and for me, I think I love the word surrender because I didn't put down the food as this diet mentality. This is what I'm, and I have to be honest with you, I don't even know my abstinence date. I, I kind of know it's towards the end of January just because of one of my injury was. And I remember when my, my temporary cast came on and my permanent cast came on, it was somewhere around there because I got to the point, I'm going to read on page 152, what describes what happened to me. It says, inwardly, I would give anything to take a half a dozen drinks and get away with them. I will presently try the old game again, for it isn't, I am not happy about my sobriety. I cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday, he will be unable to imagine either life with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. So, you know, if you're that angry, get in touch with that anger. You know, go into the doctor's opinion. Talk to someone about that because to me it wasn't about putting the food down as much as surrendering to the idea that I could not do this anymore. And like I said, just for me personally, I think sometimes we overrate willingness when really it's about the actions that we take. So whether you're willing to um, get up every morning and listen to vision for you or not, whether you're willing to put the food down or not, whether you're willing to call recovered people or not, take the action because you will get the results from the actions you take, not the willingness that you have. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Ann O., for your question. Shirley W., your turn. Shirley W. Yep. Hi, I'm Shirley W. Thank you very much, Kim, for your awesome uh, share this morning on your experience, strength, and hope. I have a question regarding someone that feels they may be dual addicted. And the dilemma is such, do you feel a person needs two sponsors, an AA sponsor and an OA sponsor? And what would your suggestion be if they're not the alcoholic of type that they take five shots and and keep going, but they feel alcohol should be on their food list of their abstinence because once they do have one or two glasses of wine for dinner, that they eat more food, even though they're not the alcoholic of type that gets drunk, that can't, you know, that can't stop drinking, but they've been raised to have wine with dinner regularly. And so when they go to an AA meeting, they're told, eat cookies and all this stuff. And if they go to an OA meeting, they're told, you're not an alcoholic. So that's my question. Like, what would your suggestion be for someone that feels that alcohol and food is a problem? Do they need two sponsors, or can they get with one OA sponsor that can help them with the program? I pass. Thanks, Shirley. Um, I am not duly addicted, so I have to tell you I don't know. And I would suggest that you. there's plenty of people that are duly addicted that can answer that question. 
Um, I will answer it in, in my own experience with pe working with people duly addicted, is that there are two differences between the steps in AA and OA. One is step one, who, what we are powerless over, and the other is step 12, is who we carry the message to. So I've, you know, for people who are duly addicted, they have to work the steps in that specific program because the powerlessness and the step one is different, and they have to carry the message to someone who has the same addiction. Um, as far as people who, who drink and they, you know, they're, they're not, they're not alcoholic, once again, we have to identify what our binge ingredients are. So, for example, I am not an alcoholic, um, but I do not drink. And I do not drink because one of my binge foods is sugar. And I don't know of an alcohol that doesn't have sugar in it. So, yes, I can have a couple glasses of wine. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm, I'm not worried about that. But what will happen is my allergy will be triggered. And I actually don't like wine. So if I was having wine, there wouldn't even be this, like, oh, I can't wait to have more thing because I don't like the taste of wine. Um, but what will happen for me is maybe not tomorrow, or maybe even not the next day, but the third day I'm going to be in the, in the drive-thru of a Dunkin' Donuts because I have ingested a trigger ingredient into my body that happens to be in alcohol. So it's not the alcohol that's the problem. It's the sugar in the alcoholic drink that is the problem. So that's what has to be identified. I know people in a way that do drink because they don't have, they have alcohol that don't have whatever their binge foods in it. Um, but so I just want to say that it's not about the alcohol. It's about whatever else is in that drink. And I don't know about you, but even when I drank, everything I drank was as sweet as possible. So I was just liquidly drinking my sugar. Um, you know, I was having all, I don't even know the name, I haven't drank it so long, but the, the fancy schmancy, like, you know, daiquiris and stuff like that was what I liked. Um, but as far as working with two sponsors and two addictions, I cannot answer that from experience because I'm not duly addicted. So I would suggest you call someone who is duly addicted. Thank you, Shirley W., for your question. Esther C. Hi, good morning. This is Esther C. in Canada. Thank you, Kim, um, for your presentation. I wanted to ask you the following question. In the doctor's opinion, which you explained so well, you talked about the cycle of disease, you know, the first compulsive bite leads to the phenomenon of craving, leads to a spree, and then, of course, remorse and resolution. So I'm, I'm finding more and more that I'm meeting compulsive overeaters where the, that first bite um, doesn't necessarily lead to a spree. I mean, this is probably where the word slip came in. You know, they, they overeat a little bit, on, you know, more than they should, or they eat a little bit of something that they shouldn't. Um, you know, they indulge a bit, they get back on, they're, you know, ab, you know absent for a few weeks or maybe a few months, and then you know, again, a little something here, and I, I don't necessarily hear remorse in their voice. And what I'm finding is that their experience is reinforcing the idea that they actually can control their food, right? Because they always say to me, "Well, I'm able to get back every time I've, you know, I've I've, I've had a slip." Um, and we can't get through the steps fast enough, you know. There's no, you know, for them to finally deal with that mental obsession. You know, they're they're frustrated, but they're not necessarily desperate. So I'm wondering if you had any suggestions of how you know, we recovered people could be helpful for people like that. Thanks, Esther. You know, I think of page 43 where it says, most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. And this is a progressive illness. So, you know, for example, with me, I had six years of abstinence with the fellowship. I, I didn't really need to work the steps, but my disease had progressed during that six years that when I did take that first bite, I never got more than nine months. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm trying to think of where it is in the, 
in working with others where it talks about I don't try to contradict such views. If they if they think they can get back and that's their experience, then they're going to that's door number three in my opinion. Um, and I think on page 33 where it says, if we are planning to stop drinking, all, drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind or any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. And I think a lot of that is, you know, especially for, and this is just my opinion again, but, you know, once we lose 20, 30 pounds, that's where I think people think they have the cushion to make exceptions. And if they're not gaining the weight, then it's okay. Um, so the, the other thing is maybe they're not a real compulsive overeater. Maybe they really are the moderate or the heavy eater. So once they make that exception, they, you know, the body has the allergy, but since they don't have the full mental obsession, they're able to get back on track. I don't know. Um, I, the only thing that I know is that you have to be abstinent to go through all the steps um, and that I cannot make anyone do anything. And I, I love that part, not pushing or prodding. All I can do is lay out that spiritual toolkit. And if you're there for the ride, great. Um, because I find And we lost you there. Star one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The man was the man was speaking. Yeah. Um, so if I am pushing or prodding someone to try to get them to do something they're not ready for, I'm going to make them not make them. I'm going to probably ruin a future opportunity. So if someone is getting back on track, and I said we know if that's if that is okay with you right now, I can't continue to work with you because you need to be absent during the whole time. And if there's ever a point where you want to put the food down 100% and feel like you can go through the steps, please call me back. Um, because I don't know. I mean, I, 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 and then once again, Esther, I believe there's a lot of hard eaters and, and moderate eaters and overeaters anonymous. Um, and, you know, a food plan and, and support will be enough for them, and they can go back and forth with that. They're not the alcoholic of the type that I am. Or they haven't reached that part of their progression. And unfortunately, until we, a lot of people reach that mangled point, they're not, you know, they're not going to do the work. Frustrating, I know. <laughs> Thank you, Esther, for the question. Ariana, your turn. Thank you so much to the speaker for presenting thoughtful and clear insights this morning. Um, I've relapsed since September and gained 40 pounds, and during this Thanksgiving I could clearly see the difference between me, a compulsive overeater, and a moderate heavy eater among my family members. Um, I didn't get it until I had this experience then. So what's precluding me from returning to my program is shame. When asked about my process to work or with others, I would share the message. But now that I've relapsed, I'm embarrassed and I'm walking with shame. So my question is to, to you is what thoughts and recommendations do you have for overcoming that public shame that may preclude someone um, from returning to the program because I want to avoid people and hide as opposed to because I'm ashamed that I've put myself back in this situation. Thank you so much. With that, I pass. Thanks, Ariana. You know, I, I, I like to go back to that doctor's opinion with this idea it's just an allergy. You know, if you had cancer and you wound up having a recurrence of cancer, would you feel shame in that? You know, if, if you had another medical problem and, and you had a flare-up, would you feel shame in that? I think a big part of it is we have to understand this is a disease. You know, and uh, if we, don't, we don't put shame on people that have a disease. So it's within ourselves. And, and for me personally, I, I really saw when I started to go through the steps especially in step three, that you know, selfish and self-centered is the root of our trouble. I am so freaking self-absorbed 
And I have to tell you, people in a way are not ashamed of you the way you're ashamed of yourself. They want you to come back. They care about you. They understand what it's like to suffer like you're suffering. You know, my, my I'm back. Um, but my experience in a way is I don't meet a lot of true newcomers. I meet people like me and most of the people who've, who've asked questions who come back over and over and over and over. It's not a unique experience. I got to get over myself and whatever I'm thinking and feeling and understand that I am on a life and death errand and that I need to do these steps and need to do this program if I want to live. Um, so yeah, I understand the guilt. I understand the shame. But if your life depends on it, you're going to need to get over that and come back and, and, and work through these steps. And I just like that analogy. I would never, you know, roll my eyes at someone who is a cancer survivor who got cancer again and said, what the hell were you doing that you got cancer again? And yet that's what we do with people who, you know, we think that people are going to do with us with our compulsive overeating. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Ariana, for your question. Lisa Lee. I believe that's the name I heard, Lisa Lee W. Good morning. This is Lisa Lee W. from New York. And um, Cam, thank you for your share. I, I truly appreciate it. I've been listening to uh, this meeting for a couple of years now. And I've been in program three years. And when I came in, I was so excited. I've already been to World Service. I was down in Virginia Beach. I've gone to all the meetings. Um, not to rub elbows with other people who are recovered, um, but I, I have struggled with the um, sponsor part of the program. And in my three years, I have lost 40 pounds just by, you know, making changes in how I ate and understanding uh, what my binge foods are and my binge behaviors. Um, now I see where... I'm kind of like what you were saying, that the disease has progressed, and I know I need to go deeper into a program. And I was just wondering, do you have any suggestions for me um, who struggles with, with sponsors? And, and part of my struggle is that um, I, I tend to put people on a pedestal, and then they become more than a sponsor. And I find that, um, um, and I know it's my fault, but finding a sponsor that um, – um, that fits for me. Do you have any suggestions for someone like me who's been in program three years, has seen some recovery, but understand that I need to go deeper into program and perhaps a sponsor would be um, the start that I need? Lisa, can you can you clap? What do you mean that you're having trouble with sponsors? As far as you're not keeping a sponsor or you don't want to have a sponsor, what's the struggle with sponsoring? I'm confused. Um, well, I have picked a few sponsors. They've been local. I've, I've chosen people in my local. And um, locally, um, um, the, the program is not as strong, obviously, as Vision for You. Um, and what tends to happen is I don't ever get to the steps. And before I know it, it, it has transformed into not really that much of a sponsorship, but more of a, a dictating and, and providing advice in areas that um, it's not their specialty. Um, like when I put down the food, um, and, I, and, and for me, my abstinence has changed when I first came in. I just needed to get to three meals a day. I couldn't even do that. So, um, so it, that has changed, and it's, it's getting progressively is getting better as I'm incorporating new things. I'm learning about myself. But when, with the sponsors, one of the things that happened, was, as you've said, once you put down the food, life happens. And um, I found that I was having behaviors that I didn't have before. One of them was, or is is that 
you know, now when life happens to me, uh, whereas I used to, you know, just squash everything and, and not deal with it, these emotions would flare up, and, and, and then my my attitude would and, and my voice would. And I actually had a sponsor that told me that, you know, there's medication. You know, you, you seem like you're hyper. I said, I'm hyper because I'm trying to deal with this right now. It's not going well. And she, on three separate occasions, wanted me to go see a, a therapist and get some medication. And I was like, you know, this isn't going to work. And so I feel like, you know, the sponsorship goes beyond getting me to the to work the steps to inform okay. get life daily. Okay, you know? I get you. You know, I have to tell you that I, I don't even really use the word sponsor much anymore. I, I say these are the girls I work with because I really like the idea of the chapter working with others. Um, sponsorship is, is not a word even used in the big book. It's something that's really grown out of the fellowship, and this is just my opinion. But I think that um, specifically in OA, and I, I see it in, I attend AA meetings even though I'm not an alcoholic because I need that message, um, is that sponsorship has really become almost like a life coach type of uh, environment in many ways. And I think you need to ask yourself, what are you looking for in a sponsor? And I'll just give you my um, suggestion of what you want to look for. You want to look for someone who accidentally went through all 12 steps and has had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps and wants to teach you the steps. And that's all you need because that's, that's what's going to give you that relief. Um, and it's perfectly okay to ask somebody that. You know, I, I oftentimes people say, well, they're afraid to ask their sponsor if they're abstinent. And, you know, when my sponsor says I shouldn't be doing the steps, I should just be, you know, getting comfortable in my abstinence. You have to know what you need. If you are a compulsive overeater like we described today, you are going to need to get abstinent and you're going to need to work the steps. And if that's not what that sponsor is offering, then my suggestion is you need to find a different sponsor. Okay, so I like the idea of working with others because my role, and this is, you know, this is for me specifically, my role is to help someone get through the 12 steps, get a connection with the power, and get them off dependence of me as much as possible. And I'm just going to describe what I think about this. This is my personal experience again. But my, my dad, my dad's a Marine, he's a tough guy. Um, and when I was, got my driver's license at 17, a couple months in, I went out, I worked at a department store and I went outside and there was a, um, had, I had a flat tire. And I called my dad and I was so embarrassed and humiliated because he came out, it was pouring rain, you know, say how old I was in a gunny sack dress, and he held an umbrella above my head as I changed the tire. And when I got home, I was so angry at him. And I'm like, how could you do that to me? And he just kind of looked at me and said, Kim, my job as a father is to become unnecessary. And it's true. My dad raised me to be an independent woman, not to be dependent on him. Unfortunately, I feel a lot of, in in, in OA specifically, we, we raise people to be dependent on sponsors. So my job as a sponsor is to get you to be dependent on a higher power, not dependent on me. So as you know, someone who, when I sponsor, I let people know right away, listen, I'm going to get you through the steps and then we're co-fellows. This is not a lifelong relationship where you're going to be calling me about all your life issues. And specifically for me, it's easy, Lisa Lee, because I've never been married. I don't have kids. That's what most people are asking about. I have no experience about that stuff. So I would suggest if find someone, ask them if they are recovered, actually went through all 12 steps, and that you want to go through the steps. That is your only aim of finding a sponsor. And I would really caution you about that idea of relating into people. Because if I can only sponsor people I relate into, I would not be able to sponsor 95% of the people. Because once again, I'm single, 
never had kids. Does that mean I can't sponsor anyone that's married and has children? You know, if, you're, if someone is 25 years old and got this program and is recovered, does that mean someone who's 50 and has relapsed over the last 25 years shouldn't have that person as a sponsor? No. It's not about relating into their life experience. It's do they have what you want? And you've got to be clear on what you want. And what I got clear on is I wanted to get abstinent, work the 12 steps, and have a spiritual awakening. So I hope that helps, Lisa Lee. Thank you, Lisa Lee, for the question. And anyone else with questions this morning? We have a little bit more time. Um, yeah, my name is Elizabeth. I have a question. Elizabeth, hold on one second. Anyone else? Last invitation for questions this morning. My name is Valerie, and I have a question. Valerie, and I heard someone else in there. Hi, it's Deanne S. from New York. And Judy K. Judy K. All right, let's start with Elizabeth. What's the first initial of your last name, Elizabeth? M as in Mary. M is in Mary. Go ahead, Elizabeth M. Um, yes, my question is specifically around OA's definition of abstinence. Um, and, uh, you know, my understanding is that it's abstaining from the compulsive eating behaviors and moving toward a healthy, moving toward and maintaining a healthy body weight. That being said, um, what role, I want to cross sponsors who seem to have a role in wanting to define my abstinence as their abstinence. Um, in terms of specific foods. And so uh, I guess I have a question of how do you manage that as a sponsor and also why do you think that OA as an organization, and you may not be able to answer this, um, doesn't, uh, beyond the Dignity of Choice pamphlet, uh, doesn't give more specifics around food plans and um, is it wrong for me to have a different food plan than my sponsor? Great question, Elizabeth. Um, (laughs) Yeah, well, um, I have to tell you, I've been in OA since 94, so um, I've seen a lot of ebbs and flows with even the eight tools changing abstinence from being a tool to abstinence being the goal and the food plan now being the tool. Um, But I, I, I strongly, strongly believe and I feel the big book backs this up, that we're not supposed to work with other people till we've been through all 12 steps. That's not what OA teaches. It's not what AA teaches even today um, or contemporary AA. You know, I was taught when you have 21 days of abstinence, you're supposed to sponsor. Well, if I haven't worked a step, the only thing I can sponsor is my food plan. So that's the only thing I've worked on. So I think we've kind of gotten in this, this um, thing that my sponsoring is telling you to eat like I eat. If I don't have neutrality around the food, which I won't because I haven't worked the steps yet, then I'm going to be threatened by anybody who eats differently than me. What happens when you get through these steps and you have a spiritual awakening and you have neutrality around the food, then you can objectively help someone else determine what their binge foods are. Okay? So I don't often, it's not unusual for me to get someone through the steps, they start sponsoring and then they call me and they go, Kim, what are your binge foods? And I'm like, my binge foods were irrelevant. I never told you what they were. And they're shocked at that because that's what's normal, quote, unquote, in a way, is that you followed my food plan. Now, once again, I want to give you the difference. 
Abstinence is abstaining from those foods and those food behaviors that create the phenomenon of craving. That's black and white. Your food plan is the limits and boundaries around the foods that you do eat. So I would hope that everyone has a different food plan because someone that's five foot tall that is 17 years old should have a very different food plan than someone that's six feet tall and 70 years old. Somebody that runs marathons should have a very different food plan than someone who has an office job where they sit at a computer 12 hours a day. So we all should have different food plans because nutritionally we have different needs. Abstinence, a lot of them overlap, but you abstaining from my binge foods that you're not allergic to is not helpful. But you eating your binge foods that I am not allergic to could kill you. So that's one of the reasons I, I really stress when you're looking for a sponsor, they should have absolutely gone through all 12 steps so they have a, the neutrality around the food to help you with your binge foods. And if people only want to work with people who work the same food plan, that's their option. But my personal opinion is you're limiting yourself because I'm so grateful that I work with people that I have sponsors in See How and How and 90 Day and Nothing you know, all those different, you know, whatever that is, because what's relevant is, do you have the allergy of the body? I will help you identify that. And then do you have the obsession of the mind, which means I will help you with the 12 steps. So that, that's, that's where I come from. As far as, you know, the Dignity of Choice pamphlet and stuff like that, I think it's great that we offer options, but I think it's great that Overeaters Anonymous doesn't endorse any food plans because we're not medical professionals. What I am an expert in you know, Elizabeth is being a compulsive overeater, is having an allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. I am not an expert in what someone nutritionally needs to eat. And it's really none of my business what their food plan is. I can help them identify their allergies, but what their food plan isn't. And I love the definition of working towards and maintaining a, body, a healthy body size because if you're maintaining 300 pounds and you're abstinent for 10 years, you're overeating for your body. May not mean that you're not even abstinent. Because maybe you're not imbibing in your binge ingredients, but you're overeating if your body is, is maintaining a lot, you know, an, an obese body. So I like that it includes that, but really it's none of my business what someone's food plan is. And I hope it didn't come off too judgmental, um, but I think it's important. And, that, and that's why I say to look for someone who has neutrality around the food so they can help you specifically so you can abstain from the foods that create the phenomenon of craving in you, not what creates the phenomenon of craving in somebody else. Thank you, Elizabeth, for the question. Valerie, your turn. Hi. Sorry, it took me a minute. Um, I am... I guess my question is is that... Um, I, I've done. I've done. Uh, it, it's almost been thirty days. That it's almost been thirty days that I'm off the sugar and the white flour, and um, it's it's taken me a while to um, uh, get with a nutritionist. You know, to be on a you know like so many proteins and this fat and the other thing. Um, but my question is is that let me see, like. I, I guess I got a little scared when I heard about, you know, you did the 30 days, but the 60 days. So um, how do I how do I know? I mean, right now, I, I right now, like I do have a neutrality when I get around certain things, but 
But being the holidays, I'm like, oh, my God, am I never going to be, like, I, I just, um, so what's my question? My question is, is, is how do I know that, that this is it this time? I, I, I don't want to go back. Like, Sally, how do where, you are you, where, are you, where are you in the steps? Where am I on the steps? Well, I went, I went, through, I went through all of them uh, with my sponsor. We went through them pretty quick. And uh, I'm, working on, I'm working on making amends to people. Um, my list is real long. I feel like my whole, I'm going to be doing it for the rest of my life. Um, and but, did you do them um, while you were abstinent? So you did them within the last 30 days? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I started, I started working with a spot, you know, with somebody, you know, with somebody so that I'm giving it away. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm scared. I guess I'm a little scared. I, 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 I just, I mean, do you, do you go to parties with, when there's, you know, do, are you going to holiday parties when there's all this food out and, and enjoying it with people and, and then, you know, I mean, I've done that and, it, and I had a great time and I didn't overeat, which was really kind of cool. But, like, I guess, I, I mean, and that's okay. Okay, I, what, I love this question, Valerie, because the neutrality comes from the steps. The neutrality doesn't come from abstinence, which is why, once again, the freedom from the allergy not being triggered is, is a freedom, which I think a lot mm-hmm. of us feel two, three weeks in, which is why we're feeling, oh, you got, you know, I, I have neutrality, because you're not feeling the phenomenon of craving in you. But the mental obsession is only removed through the steps. My suggestion is to read those 10-step promises because you sound very afraid. And one of the promises is we're not going to be cocky or afraid. We're placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. I'm not hearing that from you. So I would get in those promises and look at that. If that's not your experience, there might be some digging you need to do in the prior steps. Because my experience is I can go to parties. I can. I mean, I had a funny thing happen recently where my office, the um, we're meeting weekly, and my girl in my office said, well, I'm only going to meet weekly if we have cookies. And we have cookies at these meetings every week, and they were eating them all, and they said, we know what, we need to put the, the cookies near Kim because that's the only place they will be safe. So the only place the cookies are going to be safe is next to a compulsive overeater, which cracked me up because I do have total neutrality. Yesterday I did all my shopping for, for, uh, you know, for my family. I have a lot of binge foods in my house right now, and they have no power over me whatsoever. But recognize that that comes from step work. It doesn't come from 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever that that, that amount is. So if you're not feeling that neutrality that the 10 step is doing, I would I would dig deeper into the steps. Um, what I found for myself newly recovered was that I had, you know, it says seldom would you be interested. So yeah, you know, occasionally for me at least I would smell something. Oh, that smells good. But that was something wrong with my spiritual condition because it can't be the allergy because I'm sober. So I had to dig deeper into 10, dig deeper into 11. Are those periods where I'm tempted becoming shorter, less intense, and less frequent? Because that's what the, how the, the, the recovery will progress. So if you're newly, newly sober, um, you know, in this 30 days, is dig deeper into 10, deeper into 11, and deeper into 12. And then working with others, it does talk about that we have to look at where we are um, before we go out, that there's no right or wrong to go to a holiday party or not, 
but it also says if we are shaky, it's better that we work with someone new instead. So we're, we're going down, what are our motives going into that? You know, do we feel spiritually fit? If we don't feel spiritually fit, we have no business going in there. And I just want to assure you that I'm five years recovered and I can go anywhere on this earth and not be tempted by my binge food. I can be fully present at every holiday party for the people that are there without being distracted by the food. So my suggestion is, in, in, you know, call other recovered people. Ask them what it was like when they first got through the steps. But if you cannot identify in with those promises on page 84 and 85, my suggestion is talk to your sponsor. Look at those prior steps. You went through them pretty quickly. Maybe there's something you have to shore up in your foundation so you can fully experience those promises. Thank you, Valerie, for your question. Diane F. Hi, good morning. It's actually Diane F. Deanne, my apologies. Go ahead. No problem, Leah. Thank you, Kim, so much for your share. Um, and you know, I, I, my first inclination was to ask you, what is your, what is your morning practice of this, of this program of recovery? How do you, um, how do you get right in the morning with your higher power? Um, the morning is just a really important time for me, so I would love to hear how it works for you. Thank you. And Deanne, where, where are you in the steps, Deanne? Uh, well, I've completed them all, and I'm, well, completed them all. I'm in 10, 11, and 12. Okay. So it's a very different answer depending on where you are in the steps. Um, you know, it, it, when I was going through the work, my, I found it very important to stay where I was in, in the work. So if I was in Bill's story, I would, you know, read a little bit of Bill's story and call some people and talk about Bill's story. If I was in my step four and I was working on my resentments, I would call people that, um, that you know, and say, can you bring me through a resentment for an institution? I'm kind of confused about that. You know, if I was working on my nine steps, I'd call people and say, can you give me an example of a nine step you did with a family member? Because I have some to do with my own family members. So I find it's very important to stay in the steps that you're at. And the reason I'm saying that to you is because often people will ask me that when they're in step one and want to know about my step 10 and my 11. So I just want to focus on that. Um, what I find, since we're, we're talking about step one, but what I find is in four through nine, we learn a skill set. Okay? In step 10, I use that skill set right now because the person's a jerk and he's right in front of me, how do I use four through nine? Step 11 is three things. It's an evening practice where we go four through nine at night. There's a morning practice where we do four through nine, and, my, and this is how I see it, proactively, proactively asking God into my defect, because I know that's gonna be my problem, and then pausing throughout the day. So for me, just a funny thing, I have two dogs, and if I get up in the morning and try to turn the radio, you know, the TV on, I mean, the, the lights on and read the morning routine in the big book, my dogs would have to get up, they'd have to go to the bathroom, I'd walk to the back of the house, and I'd have to go to the bathroom, and my mind would be racing. So I believe when it says on awakening, it means on awakening. So I've actually recorded myself reading pages 80, um, you know, the morning routine in the big book onto my iPad. So when I, my alarm goes off, the first thing I do is I hit that button, and I listen to myself reading that, because my dogs now hear my voice, so they go back and, and cuddle. And then I say the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, I let my dogs out. I go into my shower and I do my little plans and designs, all the things I'm supposed to do today. Let my mind go crazy. And I walk out of the shower and I say, God, help me to live a life of invitation, which means 
just work on what's in front of me that you present to me. And then I start my day. So it's very simple, but it's important for me to understand that when I'm in charge, my life is sucky. <laughs> and I have to first thing in the morning reset myself that my higher power is in charge. Thank you, Deanne F., for your question. And our final question this morning comes from Judy Kay. Thank you, uh, Kim. This, I'm, my name is Judy Kay, and I'm uh, from Wisconsin. My question is, I, w- I weigh in at home, but do not weigh and measure in restaurants. How do you define volume eating in re- uh, how do you define volume eating? Like, what at what point do you cross from moderate eating to volume eating? And uh, and I will add that volume eating is a big part of my um, my uh, reactive disease, in which I'm sure it's for a lot, everybody. But anyway, can you um, answer that question for me? And I I know you partially answered it before, but thank you. Thank you, Judy. Um, I just want to preface that weighing and measuring is not, does not define abstinence. Um, once again, what I would do, Judy, is go back to the doctor's opinion about what creates that effect in you, and then you have to abstain from what creates that effect. So, for example, there are people like myself where if, that when I eat, overeat any food or certain foods, I get an effect from that. And because of that, the way that I deal with abstaining from that effect is I weigh and measure my food. There's other people that a part of their food plan is they know they have to limit their calories, so they weigh and measure as a way to know that they're not overeating calorically so they can lose weight. So for some people like myself, weighing and measuring is a part of my abstinence. And then for other people, weighing and measuring is a part of their food plan. So that's a big differentiation. So just because you don't weigh and measure doesn't mean that you're not abstinent. I just want to clarify that because sometimes I think that confuses people. So I think you have to ask yourself, are you getting an effect when you're out of the restaurant and not weighing and measuring? If you're not, then that's okay. So for, personally for me, I weigh and measure at home. I do not weigh and measure in a restaurant because I've learned how to order in such a way that I am not, the effect is not created and I am focused on the people around me. I had to also go into meditation when I go away and I'm eating multiple meals out. I weigh and measure the whole time because what happens is I start to get that effect. I start to say, did I have too much? Did I have too little? Did I have too much? Did I have too little? And I get distracted. So I don't want to create that effect. So I weigh and measure when I'm on vacation. So it's very important that we get quiet. And what I always recommend to people is that conversation I had right now was impossible for me to have until I had a spiritual awakening. So if, if you are not sure if, if weighing out at a restaurant or whatever is I would be consistent while you're working through the steps. And then when you get in the recovered state, you can see. Like for, I'll just give you an example for me. Eating in my car was a real problem I had because I lived with my parents and I didn't want to binge in my parents' house, so I would binge in my car. I, I eliminated that. Now, as a recovered person at work, I often eat in my car alone at work because I don't want to be around the gossip and I love being outside. So that's a behavior that has changed because in a recovered state, it doesn't have the same meaning to me. But when it comes to weighing and measuring specifically for me, just for me, proteins and starches, I'm going to get that effect, so I need to weigh and measure. 
I no longer weigh and measure my fruits because I don't get an effect from that. In fact, I will, I always joke, I share my fruit with my dog without a problem. I think I would slice my dog open if he had a little bit of my protein because I, that's my food. There's a different relationship I have with weighing and measuring my proteins and starches than I have with my fruits. So I hope that's not too confusing, but I, I just like to differentiate. I think sometimes we think that weighing and measuring is a part of abstinence in OA. It's, what it is is you have to identify what creates the phenomenon of craving in you and abstain from that 100%. For some of us, and I find many of us, the disease progresses to the point that volume triggers it. And the way that we handle that effect not happening is to weigh and measure. And that's what you have to discover for yourself, Judy. And I hope that is clear and not too judgmental. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Judy, for the question. Thank you to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you very much, Kim, for your generous service with us this morning. And I'm going to close the way we always close, and that's from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.